What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey everybody, this week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Sorry to Bother You, the new film critics are calling Get Out on Acid. Don't miss this year's most original comedy in select theaters July 6th, everywhere July 13th. It's something else. Trust me on this one. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And Ann, we are doing a special holiday week or weekend, depending on how much time you're taking off edition, in which we talk about some of the really interesting movies opening this week and some other things people can check out. But let's start with the new releases, because um, I saw Sorry to Bother You back at Sundance. I was bracing for something very weird and and, um, kind of unpredictable, and it certainly delivered on that front. Definitely does. (laughs) I would not say it's a perfect movie, but I I got a lot out of it. I think it has a lot to say. I think you were sort of more down on it than I am. but but It isn't that I'm down on it. It's it's that I don't want people to over – I really feel strongly about this. I think it's a question of – I think critics fall on something fresh and new like starving – creatures you know and if if a if a filmmaker gives you something to write about and this movie definitely does that if it's new and you haven't seen it before and it's told in a different way you guys go crazy and what i want to caution our humble listeners on is and and what i want to argue with you about is is basically it isn't it's it's better conceived and written than it is delivered and directed it is a very low budget scruffy movie totally. and he he's kind of out of his his um range of abilities or at least within the scope of of the budget that he had but i think part of the overreaching of this movie you know it's a corporate satire about a, about a guy who's Played by Lakeith Stanfield, who realizes if he uses a white voice, he you know ascends the ranks of his company. That that's such a great concept. But it's, he's also it's, doing phone sales. Let's yeah, it's, it's telemarketing. Yeah, and and it's so it's a great vessel for exploring the racial dynamics of corporate culture in a way that I think is obviously on the nose. But it takes it to well. So I knew the the premise going into it, and I thought it would be. Lakeith Stanfield, who I've heard do other voices before because he's kind of a kooky guy doing a quote-unquote white voice. Then he starts talking, and it's David Cross's voice. And it's, <laughs> it's a ridiculous gimmick, but it's, it takes you into another kind of surreal realm where, where the logic of the movie operates at its own rhythms. And you have to remember, this is a musician making a movie. It's, he, he's more interested in kind of throwing you off balance than, than making you totally comfortable with what this narrative is. And I think that's that's what drives it forward. It has this kind of underground scrappiness that I found really endearing. And the, the cartoonishness of it gives it edge, even if it's not perfect in terms of the way it holds together. I don't need you know, art you to know be what really, I, I agree with all of that, actually. And I, I understand what you're saying. And I got a big kick out of the first three quarters of the movie. And then the movie takes a turn. And it enlarges its scope, and there are various... Um, no spoilers. Wanna, I'm not going to really throw out the big it. spoiler. <laughs> but there are various crowd scenes, and it, it, it fail, and, and at this stage, um, 
from what I understand, if he had wanted to, there are very cool producers and people out there who are interested in helping Boots revamp and fix and and reshape this movie. And he did not take advantage of those things. People, this is one of those cases where everybody told him how great it was and how well it played and what a hit it was. Annapurna picked it up as is, and they're going to release it. And I just think that that, you know, be aware that this is a very scrappy, the right word, very scruffy movie. Yeah, but I think that's cool. I, I agree. So there are crowd scenes that where you can feel really the, the budget and stuff. Really but actually, let me, let me tell you something. There's, there is a crowd scene where Lakeith Stanfield's character repeats the N-word over and over again to basically a bunch of rich white people that I thought was just kind of astonishing in, in its subversiveness. It's like a, it's like a cartoon. That's a, I mean, really, That's a good scene. I thought it was really neat. I mean, there, yeah. and it keeps going. The, the, no, there's some audacious things in there that are really, you know, jaw dropping and, and, and to be, you know, and, and impressive. It's just, I think he, I, I just, I, I, I think this is one of those cases where a really gifted young filmmaker, um, out of his depth a little bit in terms of execution, um, maybe didn't take advantage of, of well, the help he could have gotten. It's interesting because he, he's, he's, he's gifted. He's not a young guy. He's 47 years old. As a filmmaker, he's yeah, young. It's, it's, it's interesting, though, because I, I, was familiar, I knew what the coup was, but his, his, his Boots Riley's group, but I hadn't really listened to their music a lot before, and I went back and I listened to it, and it has, it's, the style is all over the place, but it has a similar kind of, silly energy to it mixed with social commentary so there is a through line there if people do know the coup i think that part of it is kind of interesting they may see the the connective tissue there but also i mean as a first feature i think you're getting vision you're getting voice and it makes me want to see whatever he does next for sure but you know. I worry, I worry that so many people have blown smoke at him that he thinks he's, you know, God's gift now. I, I well, this that's happens the industry. to every filmmaker. <laughs> yes. I'm not, this is not just Boots Riley. This is a classic issue that happens after the breakout at Sundance. And how you navigate that is, is key. Yeah. Well, I doubt the guy's going to go make a studio movie next or something to that. <laughs> he told me in the, the, the profile I did this week that he had been when he was a filmmaker in residence for the San Francisco Film Society, he was, uh, he, every week he would go to Zoetrope Films to try to get a meeting with Francis Ford Coppola. Like literally, I, I asked him just to be sure, like, you literally walked into the office, like didn't know anybody there and just asked if Francis Ford Coppola was there. And he said he did it like weeks and weeks at a time, like didn't try to do it through an agent or, or you know, work through or whatever. When was this? How but old was he when he did this? Just a couple of years ago wow. because he was in San Francisco writing this movie as part of a, a workshop. And then he went to the Sundance Labs and that was like a two-year gestation period. No, they're so, very proud of them. They're, you know, they are very, they, they put a lot of energy and effort into helping him realize this. And they should yeah. always get credit for, for how many filmmakers they have helped in this way, including Kugler and, and others. I would say if you cried during Won't You Be My Neighbor and you just want more of that, Sorry to bother you is maybe not your jam, but if oh, you feeling... don't go there, <laughs> there that's like so far away from apples and oranges. But I want to say, but I'm just thinking in terms of like, it's how do you silly. recommend this movie? And, and to me, it's like if you if you want something that feels it's totally more, singular, it's more like Michelle Gondry. It's very Gondry. That's what I, I would say. I mean, I would say if you're willing to go 
to the far reaches of Michel Gondry. This is this is more your 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 I jam. I was reminded of Putney Swope, the Robert Downey yes, Jr. That's film. Not bad. Yeah, I felt like it had a bit of that attitude towards it, and that's you don't see that in a lot of films these days. It's kind of neat to see that kind of mixture of of kind of political humor and and surreal storytelling as a single package. It's a it's a cool movie. I, whether it'll do well or not, I don't know. I mean, Questlove tweeted out. He's like he joined the academy. We didn't mention him last week. We were going through the nine hundred plus new. There were so many. Questlove tweeted out, "This is my first tweet as an academy member," <laughs> and said he he's sure it's going to be a best screenplay contender. No. So, <laughs> so he's getting in front of it. You know where his vote's going to go. I guess it might have to be a write-in, but I kind of like the idea of that. But, Questlove but as I said, it it's, it's got it's full of ideas. It is. Yeah. It is chock full of ideas. Whether he was able to execute them or not is up to you. Right, right. So, so it's it's worth subjecting yourself to that if you're up for a challenge. Of course, there's also a movie that we've talked about a little bit back at Cannes opening this week if you want a more traditional experience over the holidays and you've seen the other big docs that are already out there, and that's the Whitney Houston doc, Whitney, which, um, you know, I, to me, this is, it's not quite a fans-only affair, but I do think that, that's really the target here. It's, it, it kind of it, it deepens the the kind of tragedy of her life in a way. But you do also really need to be invested in the music from the get go, don't you think? I'm not sure about that. I mean, what I think the important thing is to make the distinctions between this movie and the one that everybody compares it to, including me, uh, Amy, and and you know what what Kevin McDonald. Um, had to deal with, and the reason that he did this was that there was a mystery, there was an investigation, there was, some, you know, it's more like, who is she? She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't reveal who she is. But what what can we find out about her through her family and everybody who knew her? And because uh, she was never very revealing, it's not like it's not like Amy Winehouse who was constantly, you know, you could use her her songs as the expressive soundtrack of her life, and there was all this extraordinary footage and confessionals and. She she was just extremely articulate. It's not like that. This is a pop singer who was able to make people feel emotion, but she really wasn't expressing herself. So, so he had to do this this extraordinary mystery. And as you um, wrote about it, can and and I have a story on it this week. Um, basically, they found out there was some abuse in her background, and that's that's the big the big reveal. And they found it out two weeks before before the movie was showing in in Cannes. So it's a very different kind of movie than. Than Amy and I think actually I learned a lot and I think Kevin McDonald did a did a great job but it's hard to compete with that. It's very involving. It's it's, it's long at two hours, but I think what's what's strong about it is the volume of archival stuff meshed with so many interviews. I mean, it's it's not quite authorized, obviously, but the one of the family well, they cooperated. The they cooperated. Yeah. So, so you know why they cooperated? Because they knew that if they could get some a serious filmmaker to actually address the legacy of, of Whitney, they could they could maybe enhance her her library value. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of stupid. upsetting. I mean, yeah. it, it almost makes you not want to support the movie thinking about those things. But I do feel like this is why I go back to this this notion that if you are genuinely you know, somebody who is invested in Whitney Houston as a talent and a, and a, and a you know major cultural figure. This movie is is essential viewing because I think it does a good job of explaining how you know she came out of the, the this kind of like '60s 
uh, civil rights era and had to struggle through, you know, religious upbringing and, and then gospel singing, choir singing, yeah. but and she's that, like Michael yeah. Jackson. She's, she's like, she's one of those people that was pushed by her mother, who was also a backup singer and a, and a gospel singer and who was on the road a lot and left her kids behind, which is where this abuse was allowed to, to happen. And Whitney herself always insisted on taking her child, Bobby Christina, with her on the road. This is why she she did that. But but she it's interesting that she and Michael Jackson, who was also sort of pushed into being a star by his father who recently died, um, b- before he ever found out who he really was as a person, she was so lost and she never really became her own self. She knew how to be a star and she knew how to perform. But there's this sense of Prince and Michael Jackson and and um, the, the third one would be uh, Whitney, all of them isolated, all of them on drugs, all of them alone at the end of their life. It's sort of a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, it. well, it's weird, although the more you, you hear these stories, the more you see the trend kind of coming together where it's like, well, we had the Michael Jackson story for a long time. And it was almost like this bizarre anomaly, you know, a guy born into fame and thrust into the spotlight and developed all these problems in many ways that were a direct result of that. But now seeing the Whitney story alongside it, it, it give it kind of complicates that narrative in a way and it shows you the extent to which different kinds of expectations can really, you know, hold somebody back from figuring out who they really are. And well, so that also the idea the idea too that is so pervasive in all of these show business stories, you know, you go back to someone like Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, just any number of performers, you see this, Judy Garland, you see the people that have to turn it out. They have to keep pushing. They have to support this entire industry, you know, Elvis or even even the Grateful Dead in Long Strange Trip. You see that, that Jerry Garcia had to keep sustaining this, this world around him that he was supporting in spite of all his pain and his anguish and his unhappiness. It's really sad. It, yeah, it's true. I mean, it, and it, it almost makes you pine for some sort of upbeat alternative as a documentary. Like, who is the who is the great, you know, musician success story who's like a god among men when he's surrounded by fans who's totally well-adjusted and, just, <laughs> you know, has had a loving marriage and great relationship with the parents and stuff. I mean, it's got to be out there. That person is boring. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know how to make that movie. There's no but drama. I'll, I'll keep looking around. So you what? didn't see uh, the first purge? That's the other big opening. Oh yeah, you're <laughs> all over the purge. Uh, no, I'm I'm skipping. I'm skipping. You can you can safely say that's not my jam, Eric. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> I have to say, I enjoyed it. <laughs> but you know, I do recommend. I mean, there's a lot of. Go- I was just looking at what's in theaters now that people could go see over the weekend. There's. Um, Leave No Trace, the Deborah Granick, which is one of the best reviewed movies of the year so far, which I highly recommend, which actually opened better and did better than I thought it would. So I'm really happy. There's Won't You Be My Neighbor, the tearjerker that you referenced earlier about Mr. Rogers, an exemplar among men, somebody we can all look up to. Um, and there's First Reformed, Paul Schrader's best movie. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, and then you have uh, RBG. Hereditary is still out there, if you missed that. The the scariest movie, I would suggest, unless you have other alternatives, Eric. No, I mean, it's scarier than The pur- the First Purge, although not quite. And then Incredibles 2 is still out there. Totally, totally enjoyable. And then the movie that I went to see last weekend, because I was in a mood. It was the worst day. It was, you know, it was Kennedy and everything else going Scotus. on. Just horrible. I went to see Tag, <laughs> and I'm I'm not making any claims for Tag, but it was just what the doctor ordered. I laughed my head off. I did based on a true story, right? A bunch of guys. Who That's right. A tag totally dumb movie. Years years. Totally it dumb. Well awful. executed by a bunch of good comedy actors. All well, it's funny because I'm in uh, I'm in Argentina on vacation next week, and whenever I go to another country i always try to see that's kind of the best time to see some junky movie in theaters because at least you get the unique opportunity to find something that's like dubbed or you know so that that would be a good candidate for that sort of experience for me otherwise i think i'll I'll survive without you you will manage it's not going to be on your 10 best list at the end of the year but let's look back let's look back at the best films of 2018 it's a good time for that isn't it because a lot of people are putting out their mid-year reports so what would be at the top of do you want to work backwards let's do three two one sure yeah one one each it's it's an interesting one to to work through because there's I started a couple years ago keeping a list of my favorite movies of the year starting in January because when you see so many things at festivals, you know, it's like you lose track of when things open and what qualifies and all that kind of stuff. And I found that even in January, stuff is opening that I, I like quite a bit and it kind of continues throughout the whole year. There's lots of overlooked stuff, even more so now that stuff gets dumped on Netflix or whatever. Um, so... I'm still very much partial to some of the bigger films that are out there, but I would say probably my number three film on this list would be Annihilation, which uh, was, you know, kind of dumped to some extent in theaters, but it was a tough sell as a studio film. I just thought it was so uh, fascinating as a, you know, a piece of uh, sci-fi storytelling with an overarching mystery about, the nature of intelligence, and um, it's a great follow-up to Ex Machina that keeps you engaged the whole way through, and the climax is sort of an action showdown, but it's also a dance piece. It's just a very innovative take on a genre that always benefits from being shaken up a little bit. So while it, it didn't get the the kind of release in the U.S. that it deserved and was released on Netflix everywhere else, I do think it's a film that with time people will begin to appreciate more. I was expecting that film to be higher up on the lists that have been coming out. And there was a Metacritic list um, which had the top 20 by review, you know, in other words, based on what their aggregated uh, ranking was. And it wasn't on there. And I looked it up and it was at 79. So the stuff that... (laughs) The stuff that was on the top lists were in there, you know, we're up yeah. in the eighties and stuff. And and that's a very good grade. I mean, seventy-nine is a yeah. respectable grade. And I loved Annihilation. Um, so I highly recommend that as well. But it makes me wonder if it's going to end up in the year-end critics rankings as I would have thought it would. You see yeah, what I mean? Gotta, I, I, something it. tells me that's not gonna happen. It's a tough one. And it and it even though critics liked it, it didn't there's some stuff wrong with it. It's basically. not for, it's not for yeah. all 
pace and it's and it's just cerebral. He doesn't pull it out. Yeah, there's something. I like that aspect of. It. I like no, the incredibility of it. But. Yeah, I agree. So I I would go back to another movie that isn't as highly ranked on the critics charts, but which I feel improves over time and is one of the best recent movies by Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One. And I, in retrospect, I, looking back at all the stuff that came out this year, it was the best thing he'd done in a while. It was the most engaged, the most exciting, the most innovative, the most unusual thing for him. And he also had a message included in this big, spectacular, uh, you know, video game universe, immersive, crazy alter egos and avatars and and stories within stories and VFX galore, which I think he totally pulled off so that it was a believable immersive world. He also had a message, which was to love your neighbor and pay attention to the real world and, and make love, uh, not video games. So I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to rave about ready player one. It was a nice surprise that that movie, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's a Spielberg movie. Never discount Spielberg. Never underestimate Spielberg. You know, seeing that movie at South by Southwest where they had that hilarious snafu and the screen froze for a second and then it kept going. It was kind of cool because, I mean, I think the movie the movie ain't perfect, but it's it's got some really interesting ways of, of playing with uh, the kind of status of uh, technology for people who kind of live by it and live inside of it. And it doesn't turn it into a cautionary tale. I think it's maybe a little too idealistic in a way, but that's Spielberg for you. But but I would agree that what's really impressive about it is just how much it keeps you engaged. I agree with that. I totally agree. That's a good way of putting it. And there's even a romance in there, God forbid. Yeah. So I, 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 I think that one may sustain itself as, as a strong Spielberg entry over time. Yeah, the more people go back and kind of look, especially if you look at his work as a whole in terms of what the, the that side of his career is, the commercial stuff, the spectacle stuff, this is one of the more impressive ones for sure. So my number two is also a feel-good movie that's super idealistic, and if you had asked me a year ago if I'd be talking about this, I'd probably find it a little silly, but... Here we are with me singing the praises of Paddington. I knew too. it. <laughs> now I'm not going as wild with the sort of like campaigning for this movie like some people because I understand the nature of the business and 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 what this thing is and what it's designed for and the profile it has. But I have to say, it's it's not only is it better than the first one, it's just really really um, effective at channeling the kind of idealism of a children's book into something that is actually a pretty complex statement about the world today. I mean, Paddington actually, this is a movie in which a, a talking bear actually gets locked up in jail for a crime he didn't commit. He gets framed and then charms everyone in the jail and plots an escape through the goodwill he displays towards others and it, it pushes beyond its cheesiness to just become this enthralling adventure and it's visually it's like a Wes Anderson film it's so meticulously done and I was I was really really impressed I, I wish more movies it made, made me w wish that those old the Pixar movies that we don't get quite enough of that that magic came back 
to films that are all ages films. I mean, this one is just really, really polished. I loved the first one too. And I think that that one, you know, that was a Weinstein co release that sort of got dumped and, and actually got great reviews too. And I love, I love this movie. I highly recommend it for anyone who's missed it. And the other thing about it is that you've got Ben Wishaw as the bear, and then you have Hugh Grant who is hilarious, hilarious in this and he just goes for it. There's something, something has happened to Hugh Grant where there was always this slight uptight British quality about him, which he used and he played with, but he's a very wily guy. I think he's one of the, he, he's one of those actors like Cary Grant, his, you know, Cary Grant, who it, it, he makes it look easy and he's very self-deprecating and, and he, he's, you know, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm just doing my best kind of thing. And he's actually very good at what he does. And he's also very good in this other thing that also co-stars Ben Wishaw as his lover, which is a very English scandal. And he's been doing the talk show <laughs> circuit, Hugh Grant. That's on Amazon, by the way, if any of you haven't caught up with it yet. It's very, very good, very different. Um, but this has a, Paddington 2 has a musical number. That That's is great. You got to stick around through the credits. Yep. Yeah, so cool. And I, and they haven't announced a third one. They'd be stupid not to. I don't know. I mean, no, I'm, I'm not sure they will. I'm they sure better they, they better do that. So what's um, your number one? Well, number two would be, oh, right. uh, number two would be, I think I'll just go straight to um, the movie you just mentioned, which is Isle of Dogs. That would be my, um, these are movies that are like not quite live action and not quite animation, both of them. They're they're kind of hybrids. And, and I would say, um, as a style Nazi, as I am, um, Isle of Dogs is just so visually, orally, in every way, uh, controlled and precise. It's Wes Anderson on steroids doing his thing in Japan and uh, with dogs and trash. And I love it. I, I love it. I can't love it any more than, I, than, than this. I guess the challenge with Isle of Dogs is that it's a Wes Anderson movie and every Wes Anderson movie is compared to the Wes Anderson movies that come before it. It's no fantastic Mr. Fox, I think, which I rewatched recently when I saw Isle. Um, it, to me, it was like, it was a little obvious in parts, but I, but I enjoyed it. I mean, his voice comes through. It's, it's a very clever concept and, and all the kind of cutesy dog humor is pretty spot on. Nice yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want to dismiss it too much as as, as being though. comedic and cute because it took an enormous amount of planning and skill, and also that kind of whimsical um, jumping on weird, strange things that he knows how to do with his cohorts, um, Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman and, and whoever helps him to make these things happen. I, I really think that there's more clever uh, uh, creativity involved than, than you may be giving him credit for. I'm going to, I'm going to plan to watch it again before the end of the year. I, I like, I like the movie enough to appreciate that much. And obviously there is this more, the thornier issue of what representation, whether it's sort of co-opting or fetishizing Japanese culture, which I think it's hard for us to comment on that completely, but it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's always a challenge with a filmmaker who is so precise in his vision to, to try to talk about it in broader terms that when you know that vision so well. So, but it's, it's, it's definitely a good one to, um, to debate. Um, so my so number what's one, your number one. Yeah. yeah so I, Went back and forth on this for a little bit. I really like First Performed, and I thought about that, putting that in the first place right now. It's certainly in the conversation in that respect. It was a nice surprise last fall. 
because I've seen Paul Schrader's movies and, you know, even knowing this one was coming, wasn't quite sure if it would deliver on the level that, you know, it was sort of being set up to. And it's, it's, it's a very satisfying movie and, and, and quite shocking. It's not my number one, not at the moment. My number one, I, the more that I look at the list that I keep of the films that I've really, really responded to, it's got to be Death of Stalin. Because Armando Iannucci, who people know from In the Loop and from the earlier seasons of Veep, is such a brilliant satirist. But you know, kind of similar to what I was saying about Wes Anderson, he's got such a distinctive voice that a lot of times runs the risk of feeling like he's repeating himself or like, you, you know, it gets old after a while. The great thing about Death of Stalin is that it, it takes that same kind of acerbic uh, element of, of looking at, you know, these really highly dysfunctional political figures cursing at each other and turning it into to high satire. And it, and it turns it into this Cold War era comedy about you know, an oppressive regime in a way that is just continually hilarious. I've seen it a few times now, and each time it delivers. Steve Buscemi in particular as Khrushchev is so great. It's one of his best roles in years, and it's just all the way through. The, the, the Cockney accents or whatever, however people speak in the movie, it's not a problem. I mean, if anything, it enhances the, the, the kind of ridiculousness of it. Throughout the movie, what's what's great about it is that it's not like a redemption story or anything. These are all terrible people, and you kind of feel like it's it's setting the stage for the way in which these things have been explored and talked about in contemporary circumstances. So I think it's just a really satisfying and resonant uh, way for a terrific filmmaker to expand his voice. I love that movie, and that's on my list as well. And um, and I'm debating uh, which way to go. I mean, I love Lean on Pete, and I love The Rider. These are two other films that came out earlier in the year that stand up uh, very high in my uh, reckoning. And of course, there's Black Panther, which you know is way up there, but doesn't really need any help from us at this point. So I'm going to go back to Leave No Trace, which um, I just want people to go see it. I want them to recognize the extraordinary detail and precision um, and the, 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 it, just the, the faultless execution, talking about execution, uh, that Deborah Granick brings. Um, she and her writer, Anne Rossellini, adapted a book, and they took years to do this, and they did research, and they just went the, the longest mile you could imagine to make this as authentic and dramatic as possible. And then Ben Foster and newcomer Thomas and McKenzie, who's a discovery along the lines of Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone, um, really deliver uh, this father-daughter saga uh, with, with tears, I think, uh, right in there. So uh, I hope people go see this. So people have a lot of options if they do choose to go to an air-conditioned movie theater. But if you're staying at home, there's plenty of options for movies that you can stream. And we wanted to recommend some of those as well because it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's great to support movies in current release, but the reality is people are going to stay home. And if you're going to stay home and watch a movie, please don't just click on the most obvious thing that comes up on your Netflix queue because there's way better stuff out there. I wanted to say uh, that I noticed that uh, The Searchers is, is newly available on Filmstruck. And if you haven't seen The Searchers, you should see The Searchers. If you've seen it and you don't totally remember, it's been a while. I think it's probably oh, it's so worth revisiting. Great. I'm going to go back and revisit it. I think it's a 
terrific American movie because as we get further and further away from the searchers that the readings of this film have become more nuanced. We come to understand the John Wayne character as sort of representing this earlier era, very, you know, you know, kind of racist white male view of, of the world, but also Which, by, by the way, we may need to revisit in our current absolutely. state right now. This is about xenophobia. In some ways of searchers has never been more timely, except right. there is this kind of sense at the end, this iconic shot that his time is over. So I, what I'm wondering is, does that shot register as almost empowering, you know, to some people today? What, what can we learn from the searchers? I think it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant Western. It's a beautiful movie. And I think that anybody who tries to kind of say, you know, it doesn't age well because of, you know, the undercurrents of racism isn't looking closer at that's the way the this part, movie is trying right. to deal with that. I don't think that's the part that doesn't doesn't age well. I actually played this movie for, um, I was teaching a few years ago, a film criticism class at USC, and I was struck by how badly it played for the kids. And I, the next year, uh, instead, I showed Stagecoach, which played perfectly well. And if you think about that, stage close, Stagecoach is an action Western that defined all the Westerns to come and it's very straight on. This one has comedy. This one has a lot of business, bits of business that don't age well. And I think that's the part that doesn't play. I don't think it's the central story so much. Um, and it's still a very dark, disturbing movie. I, I, it's a great movie, but uh, the parts that don't age well have to do with the comedy, I think. I was going to recommend a couple things. There's Patrick Melrose, which is on Stars, which is a, an extraordinary um, Benedict Cumberbatch vehicle. And um, it, it really makes... Um, uh, he's in and out. He can be great. He can be not great. And if you've read these books uh, by Saint Aubin, they're they're very very good. They're they're there's a, uh, a the the series actually is very well adapted uh, and and very cinematic and very entertaining. But at its center is Benedict Cumberbatch, his uh, who's the victim of some abuse by his father, played by Hugo Weaving, and some neglect by his mother, played very well by Jennifer Jason Lee. But it's all about this guy who's a raging drug addict who loves to have a good time and behave badly and just he's out of control and how he copes uh, with all of this. It's, 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 it's quite, quite good. And then there's Sharp Objects, which comes on July 8th on HBO and it's Amy Adams in a, uh, a series that is uh, adapted from the Gillian Flynn novel. It was her first novel. And uh, Pat Patricia Clarkson plays her mother. And she, she's a, a reporter, a hard-drinking, unhappy, gorgeous reporter who has to go back to her hometown and uh, deal uh, with a, a series of murders there and, and with her own mother. <laughs> so it's, it's very, uh, it's, I saw the first episode. I haven't seen all of them, but I can't wait to see the rest of it. Have you, by the way, been watching the new season of The Handmaid's Tale? I know, I'm behind. I, I just got through it all. It, it hasn't all aired yet, but I've seen the full season. It, if you like the, the first one- Which I did. Investing in it, it's 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 such an. I mean, talk about a show that's been endowed with power in our current era. I mean, it's just such a unnerving portrait of the oppression of women. But it's uh, it's also the most beautiful episodic 
thing happening right now. It's just extraordinary what they've pulled off here. And Elizabeth Moss, so often in close-up, her her reaction shots, you know, where she comes this close to rolling her eyes at all these awful people around her is is the the driving motif of the show. So I would say keep, way, stick with it. Melrose, I just looked this up because I had a feeling I had it wrong. It's on uh, Showtime. Forgive me. Record Melrose is on Showtime. And uh, th- this is why I'm not a television <laughs> reporter because yeah. I don't remember these You things. can be forgiven in this. I, I, I hate to say it. And then uh, the other thing, by speaking of Filmstruck, um, they're showing a bunch of old uh, Joseph von Sternberg movies. There's a whole collection of them. And I happen to be an old fan of Morocco from 1930 with Marlena Dietrich and the most gorgeous man who ever lived, Carrie Cooper, um, which is kind of a sick romance. You, you have to see it to believe it. And then Shanghai Express, which is unbelievable, very pre-code, very salacious, really fun. Shanghai Lily, Marlena Dietrich. I mean, in other words, Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg got away with murder during this period. In, in the 30s, um, and and he was able to do all sorts of stuff that you would never imagine, like Blonde Venus and Scarlet Empress and The Devil is a Woman. So all of these, and Dishonored, these are all available to uh, to see on Filmstruck if you happen to have that ability. I'm, I'm totally checking some of those out. He's, he's extraordinary every time out. Um, cool. Well, we have given people a lot to watch. I mean, I would say... If you don't get through it all holiday weekend, don't stop there because uh, we're going to take a little break next week. I'm heading out of the country for a little vacation. And uh, when I get back, we will be into late July with all kinds of stuff. I'm sure right around the corner, the fall looms ever closer. So I look forward to connecting with you when uh, I return. Anne, and I hope you can fill me in on all the news that happens when I'm out. But enjoy Have a great the, time, uh, Eric. Have fun. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.